Welcome back to the Orthodox West Gazette, a miscellany of talks, interviews, ponderings, and presentations. I'm Stephen Brannan, back with Father Patrick Cardine for part two of our conversation about the Ember Days. Having already discussed their history and their original but now often obscured purpose, here we talk about what the Ember Days can mean for us in our day and how they might uniquely help us in our constant and perennial struggle with time. Okay. Well, this is fascinating. I, I mean, I love, I love everything about what we've talked about so far. Uh, just to recap, so the Ember Days, you know, this mysterious liturgical um, relic of some of the earliest liturgies of the church, actually predating the liturgical calendar as we know it, predating seasons like Advent, possibly Lent. Um, I mean. So we've got these these four periods of the year that were from before the liturgical calendar. Has They've been retained with the development of the liturgical calendar. And because of this strange history, we've lost a little bit of what their initial purpose and meaning was. But you have uh, learned that they are actually tied to the solstices and equinoxes. And that the church, along with probably everyone else in the ancient world, was marking these times. And the way that they did it was with these fasting periods called the Ember Days. Is that kind of, in a nutshell, where where we are? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> okay. it, in a nutshell. And, <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean... So, it, and and that, it, that may not sound all that exciting or spiritually important at first... And that's kind of where we are in our talk right now. So, okay, so what? So why are they still there? Um, and what's important about them? And how can they be beneficial in in the life of a Christian community and in, in somebody's personal life as they, as they go through the church year? Um, and that's kind of what I'd like to talk about next. Before I do that, um, just in case somebody is a little fuzzy on what a sol the solstice and equinox are, I thought mm, we good point. should just briefly maybe touch on that. Right. Um, you know, the solstice uh, indicates the longest and shortest days of the year. So there's two solstice days. One is the longest, one's the shortest. The equinox uh, are two days of the year that are equally divided. So that two times a year on two days, there's 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night. And the easiest way for me to remember that is equa, equal, right, <laughs> equinox. Right. So I think of equinox as equal, 12 and 12. Um, the reason that those days are divided equally is because the sun is shining directly at the equator, not at an angle. The earth is not tilted in, when it's aligned with the sun during those two days. And so the sun, the, the sun spreads out equally, you know, north and south over the equator. Uh, the equinox days are March 21st, roundabout, I mean, basically March 21st, mm -hmm. and September 23rd. So we have spring and fall. Equinox okay. um, are in, the other thing to remember that's helpful is the equinox are in the moderate seasons, mm -hmm. spring and fall, not the harsh seasons. Mm -hmm. So the solstices, two days a year, again, for solstices, one day is the longest day, the other day is the shortest day, and these days are reversed depending on whether you're in the northern or southern hemisphere. 
so the Earth is spinning on its axis at an angle of 23.5 degrees. And as it rotates around the sun, the sun, because it's maintaining its, its, its tilt the whole way, you know, in the same direction. So it goes around the sun, that tilt is causing the sun to hit the Earth differently um, and giving longer and shorter days at one point in the year. Then it goes around and you get the long day in one point and the shorter day at the other point. The two solstices are June 2021, the longest day for us, and December 2122 for the shortest day. So we have the beginning of summer and then we have winter. Um, so just again, the equinox are equal parts, day and night, half day, half night. In the moderate seasons of spring and fall, the solstices are the longest day and the shortest day in the extreme seasons of summer and winter. And as we pointed out earlier, um, the ember weeks were always um, in March, June, September, and December. Mm -hmm. When you take all the evidence that we've been talking about, and we, you know, that we've gone through, and you look at it, it becomes really explicitly clear that the ember weeks were originally observed to mark the astronomical passage from one season to the next. That's why they exist. And they are ancient, and they are venerable, and the church refused to get rid of them. Yeah. The, these, the, the other thing that's important for us to note, recognizing these four seasons and these four astronomical markers is not a uniquely Christian idea. Yeah, I mean, this right. is, you know, this is the world, this goes across all ages, all societies, all cultures. Yeah, very human thing. The human thing. Um, it's a recognition of the, uh, the cosmological, divinely appointed quarterly division of the year. <laughs> yes. Which orders, it orders our life in this world. Um, it doesn't anymore because of electricity, which we're talk, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Um, it, it, it doesn't order our life like it used to in the last 130 or so years. But for all time, it has ordered life on this planet. And very much over, the, over a year's period, very much the way the creation week orders our life on a weekly cycle. Mm -hmm. So when you kind of take all this together and you say, okay, wh what does all this mean? What was the church thinking? Why were these Ember Days so important? Why were they so central? Why were they so, you know, they, 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 they've been retained. The, the Ember Weeks essentially are the way that we sanctify time. It's, it's the way that we order our lives within the yearly cycle and seasons of the cosmos in, in, in this chronos time. Mm. And so when we begin to think about this, this leads us to consider time and our relationship to time. What is our relationship to time? We're in time. We're, we're a part of time. Time is the context of our very being. Right. Um, what do we think about time? And how are we being saved in time? You know, the first thing we have to say is that time was created by God, so it's good. Time is good. Now, that's a shocker to most people because that's not how most people feel about time. We have a very uh, disfigured relationship with time. I mean, really, time for most of us is an enemy. Yeah, yeah. Time I mean is an oppressive 
result of the corrupt condition we find ourselves in. I mean, time is marching towards death. Right. Time is not our friend. We have a very strenuous, you know, tenuous relationship with time. Um, and yet time itself is sort of the, the primordial context of our very existence. And so it is imperative that we straighten out this relationship with time. We need to master time with holiness. Basically, you know, what, a different way of saying sanctification. We need to master time with holiness. And if we don't, we are always going to be fighting a losing battle. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that on a like direct personal level, I know exactly what you're saying, how that feels, whether it's, it's the day or the week, you know, get to the end of the week and didn't get enough done, get to the end of the day and, you know, tempted to keep working, but then I have no free time and then it's time for bed. And, you know, it's, it's just this, this constant struggle. Yeah. It really can be. It's life in this world. And it's 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 such a foundational, basic level of our very existence is this relationship with time. I mean, we have got to think deeply about this and we've got to reorder this relationship somehow. We have to sanctify time. So how do we do that? I think what I think where we have to start to do this and we're going to talk about how the Ember Days can help us. But first, we have to start by realizing there's kind of two kinds of time going on. Two plane, two different planes or dimensions of time that are coexisting and that they are intersecting one another. First, there's cosmological creation time. So we're talking about the tick-tock of the clock, you know, the passing of the hours and days. So that's the first kind of time cosmological time. I'm going to refer to that as cosmological time. The second kind of time, though, is on a whole different plane, and that I'm going to call eschatological time. Eschatological time is the eternal time of the kingdom. Our gospel, our faith, we proclaim that the kingdom eschatological time is coming into cosmological time. <laughs> it's it's invading this time, space, chronos, time, you know, space that we exist in via creation, via our first creation. So it's crossing over into our time and space. And in as much as it crosses over and makes itself felt and known, it fills, fills this current time and space of our corrupt life. It fills it with meaning. Meaning comes in from the outside, or we could say comes down from above. So these are the two kinds of time, cosmological chronos time and eschatological eternal time of the kingdom. I think that, you know, we'll begin to understand how the ember weeks can be meaningful in our life and on our liturgical calendar when we understand that the ember weeks and the temporal liturgical calendar cycle, these are both of the same genius, but they are of a different species. <laughs> they are really addressing two different kinds of time. The ember weeks commemorate one kind of time. The temporal liturgical cycle calendar commemorates a different kind of time. Hmm. These kinds of times have been separated by sin, by the way, because hmm. they weren't they were together. In, the, in paradise, it was sin that separated them, fractured them. And it is now our vocation as priests in the kingdom of God, 
as a kingdom of priests, it is our vocation to bring them back together. That's basically what we are doing as, as, an, as a holy nation. Um, so the original and primary meaning, which we've been try, trying to, to show of these ember weeks, these ember tides, is that through fasting, prayer, almsgiving, we are sanctifying cosmological chronos creation time through the commemoration of these four seasons, the two equinoxes and two solstices. And I'm not going to get into it right now, but St. Leo I, great saint of the church, preached, I don't know, eight or nine or ten sermons, Ember Day sermons, on these oh, wow. topics. It is precisely what he preached about. Oh, wow. That this is exactly what was going on. That's exactly why the Ember Weeks feel a little bit different. They're of a different ilk because they're commemorating cosmological time and the liturgical year, the temporal cycle, is all about eschatological time. This disparity is, is what has caused some confusion because there's just been a lack of understanding uh, of this in our day. But the fact that there's a disparity, that these two things are commemorating two different kinds of time, is precisely the value in retaining the Ember Weeks. That's why we need to retain them, is because they are commemorating something different. Right. And I want to talk a little bit about that because that's what's so important about this. Um, the Ember Weeks become for us kind of an existential moment of how we live in the flesh in the world, but in the kingdom at the same time, how we mm -hmm. join these things together. And that's really our challenge. That's what you were expressing a few, a few minutes ago about we all are faced with sort of the tyranny of this challenge and, and of time and the ticking clock. And, and to live a holy life at the intersection of the kingdom of heaven while being in the world and in the flesh I mean, that's pretty much our vocation as Christians in this world. I mean, this is how we manifest our priestly vocation. We mediate as priests. We're all priests. As priests, we mediate basically cosmological and eschatological time. Essentially, we're mediating heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, another really interesting observation uh, before we move on, just to pull out of all of this that has to do with this distinction distinction of different kinds of times is the mass, the mass versus the office. So the, the, the divine office is the handmaiden of the mass. The mass lies at the very center of everything for us. But the divine office is that first concentric ring um, that supports, it's the handmaiden of the, of the mass. The mass is ordered according to the Sundays in the church year, as we've said. And the Sunday is the day of resurrection. Sunday manifests eschatological time. It's the eighth day. It's the day before seven days of creation. It's a day of the kingdom. It's a day when we step outside of time. That's what Sunday is, because it's the day of the resurrection. So Sunday is a day of eschatological time. And the church year is based on the life of Christ. And on Sundays, on every Sunday is a Pascha. Every day is a day to step into the eighth day. Anyway, so that's the church year and Sundays are really rooted in bringing eschatological time, the kingdom, into our daily lives. But the divine office is different. The divine office is on a weekly seven-day cycle, and it finds its rhythm according to the creation week. 
<laughs> the divine office actually commemorates, accentuates and commemorates cosmological time. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's organized differently according to the seven day creation week. And just one detail to help prove the point is the Vesper hymn for each day written by St. Ambrose, by the way, the first stanza of each Vesper day for each day commemorates what God had created on that day. Mm. Even liturgically between mass and the office, we have these different emphases on eschatological time, on heaven, the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, and on our life in this world, in, in, in the, you know, in the cosmos, in this universe, according to the rotation of the earth around the sun. So that's an important thing to just keep in mind. So how important is this? I mean, is this important? Um, this all sounds kind of abstract. It's not abstract. I mean, there's nothing more practical than the tick-tock of the clock. <laughs> I mean, you know, and we feel it. You know, we feel the tyranny of it. It's ruthless, you know, and it's bringing us to death. I mean, so much of the scriptures and the Psalms deal with man's trauma, in a sense, over this. Hmm. Paul to the Hebrews that says that we, we actually sin. We go on sinning because of the fear of death that is approaching us, which is really all a, a situation of time, what little time we have left. So this is a big deal to think about and, and how we can psychologically, emotionally, spiritually develop a culture in which we can we can sort of master time by sanctifying it, master it through holiness. So as long as we remain subject to cosmological time and space, we're in a state of vulnerability to death. And obviously, as we all know, that's not what God created us for. Our, our whole liturgical life is basically everything we do, our fasting, our prayer, our sacrifice, our ritual observances, all of it is meant to mediate between these realities of our physical, material, finite, earthy, you know, cosmological nature um, to mediate between that, which is, which is what we are by nature. We are, we are mud people. We are people of the earth. But we are supposed to become people of heaven. We're supposed to bridge that chasm. I mean, Christ has bridged it, but we participate in that bridge by coming part in Christ. So as you know, by sanctifying this life that we have been given in this world, in time and space, we're doing two things. First, we're restoring it to its original beauty in, as it was in paradise in goodness, but we're also beginning to realize its original purpose, that this life was an instrument to help us to attain unto God's eternal divine life. And this happens on every level of our liturgical life in our Christian life, not just the Ember Days, but the role of the Ember Days, and this is the point, <laughs> the role of the Ember Days is unique in this, um, in the sanctification of cosmological time, because these Ember Days are irrevocably built into the quarterly seasons, which mark the passage of, of, you know, the earth around the sun. This is something God did. You know, it's not some clock we set up. Mm -hmm. um, this is God's clock that is run by his divine agents. It's always been this way. And we're never going to like 
improve on it. We're never going to come up with something better. We're never going to, you know, it always amazes me at how advanced we are with our science and technology. And yet dirt is still dirt. <laughs> you know, I, the stuff, the sun is still the sun. These things are never going to change. Um, you know, and, and we're never going to move on to something better. It's, it's irrevocable built into God's creation and it's still the way God is operating and moving and the logos is controlling the universe and our life within the universe and the church obviously in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit has felt that these ember tides are important because what they're all about is they're all about sanctifying this cosmolog, this chronos time, this life within a liturgical manner through prayer and fasting and masses. And that by doing that, you know, we are somehow helping to mediate between heaven and earth. I mean, that sounds all lofty and everything, but it's also very practical. It just, it just plays out in practical life. I mean, you don't have to know all of that, like for it to actually work. You just have to observe the feasts, the fasts, that's all. You just have to prayerfully observe the fasts. You don't even have to really completely understand what's happening as you're doing it. But it will happen. It will have the desired effect. Here's another kind of interesting detail uh, to sort of make the point in another way. There's, there's, um, it's a really interesting fact that the, the, the year is divided into four parts. And this says something to us about nature, as God has created nature. So to the ancients, the number four has always been the number most profoundly associated with creation. Uh, there's four elements of earth, four elements rather, earth, water, air, and fire. There's four rivers flowing out of paradise. Why four? Because they're flowing to the four corners of the earth. Now a lot of people, why does the earth have four corners? I thought it was round. Well. It's because the earth is God's footstool and footstools are square and that's why it has four corners. But there's four rivers flowing down off the mountain of paradise to the four corners of the earth. There's four evangelists which proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth with its four corners. Christ will gather his elect from the four winds. And there's four seasons which order our year and we mark these seasons the the whole year is divided up into four equal parts we mark this with fasting and prayer according to our ember days it's interesting to me as i began thinking about these things a few years ago that the fact that so many people so few people seem to connect the ember days with creation time Mm -hmm. is telling of something we talked about a little bit earlier it's telling of our disconnection to the sacramental nature of creation like we've lost this connection just the fact that it became less obvious that that's what the ember yeah i mean yeah exactly we 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 don't we haven't retained a, a kind of a logos cosmology which speaks the language of god the the cosmos speaking and praise to god this started bothering me years ago you know, we're chanting the Psalms. We pray the divine office every day. You're chanting these Psalms, reading the Psalms, and they're all cosmological. 
And I'm thinking, if this is the church's prayer book, this has been the prayer book for the people of God for 3,000 years. Like, and it it's become kind of a little bit meaning we're disconnected from it. Like, we don't really, it's not speaking to us because we've sort of lost lost something here yeah um we we basically don't understand our life in this world why i mean well it's due to many things i mean sin obviously bad scholarship <laughs> electricity in a, in a very real practical way the industrial revolution the loss of yep. an agrarian society the desacralization of nature um the enlightenment scientism technology I mean, I'm not anti-technology, but I do think that we have to be honest about the impact and effects of some of this stuff. And scientism, I mean, definitely against scientism. I mean, it's a terrible thing that's happened in our culture. You know, just plain old good old-fashioned worldliness has played a part as well. But all of this has basically contributed to our confusion and, and, and inability to really connect with the ember days which should be um somewhat obvious to us quite yeah. frankly yeah it, it, yeah they should be these anchoring points to help us uh, get our bearings in in the cosmos and instead they just sort of float by <laughs> and like you said most of us don't don't know what to do with them except that we we fast because we see the little fish icon on our calendar and well, right. I guess it's a fast day. It's one of those ember days again. Uh, but then we just kind of scoot right on by. You said it earlier. I mean, all of us can relate. You know, either there's not enough time, which brings on anxiety, or there's too much time, which brings on boredom. Um, time passes. I've been thinking a lot about this this past year. I've been thinking about how time passes. And there's a certain melancholy as we pass through time and the experiences that we've had in our past, the good ones that we remember. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we become nostalgic and sentimental and we realize they're gone. Yeah. They don't exist anymore, except in our memory. Yeah. You know, and there's this feeling of loss of something. I mean, nobody in the world puts music to this better than the Irish. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're like, they're the masters of melancholy, right? And sentimentality. That's why I love their music so much. Um, it draws this out and they do know um, how to distill a feeling into a song. They do. They're good. They're good at distilling in general. <laughs> you know, maybe they weren't pleasant memories. Maybe they were, they were, there were bad things that we did and then we've got these bitter right, regrets now they and haunt. We, we, yeah. they haunt us and we can't get them back. That's time past. What about time future? I mean, we thinking about all I got to do tomorrow or, you know, retirement or I can't pay the bills or I'm going to get sick when I get old. I mean, I've got some elderly people in my church, not too many, but a few. And I can tell, you know, they, they have sometimes they have a little bit of anxiety thinking about getting old and the pet, you know, the sickness and the things that are going to come. There's fear and anxiety um, that we face. Um, maybe, maybe we feel discontent, discontent. We're discontent a lot, actually. It's because we don't know how to be present where we are, but um, we think about, oh, when such and such happens, everything will be good. 
Hmm. You know, when I get, when I cross this certain threshold in my future, then I'm going to, you know, be happy and content. And that is not how it works. We always feel that way. And so we're dreaming about some future satisfaction and consolation. And we're just seemingly forever discontent in the present moment. Yeah. I mean, I, these um, are just some of the, you know, yeah, we no, talk about I, this forever, but I lit on, on, Back on January 1st, uh, I, you know, was contemplating the new year as one does and uh, thinking about the Roman deity Janus, you know, Janus, um, as sort of this, the unintentional but perfect icon of human anxiety about time because he's always looking backwards and always looking forwards, but never attending to the present. Uh, he's got, you know, two faces that that look in, in both of the wrong directions. You know, it's um, mm. it's he's a he's a strange mm. God. Um, wow. And yeah, so it's I mean that I mean, yes, this this problem, um, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, yearly uh, over the over course of a lifetime, I think we all absolutely, especially in our modern, postmodern, whatever whatever age we're in now, uh, we, we have yeah, problems. We have problems with, with time and it seems to only be getting worse. So what do we do? Well, we have, to, I mean, I think there's only one answer to what we do. If we go back to the very beginning, I, I said, God created time. Time is not our enemy. God is good. I mean, time is good. God made time. You know, in the beginning, the Holy Spirit, let's remember the Holy Spirit is the one who ordereth all things in harmony. That Holy Spirit hovered over the tohu bohu, or I like Alter's translation, the welter and waste of mm. formlessness and chaos. And the Holy Spirit is hovering and he's bringing things into harmony and into order. And God separates, as he does, the light from the darkness. And what does he create? The first day. Okay. Time. Along with the ordering work of the Holy Spirit, God creates time, and time is good. And we need to remember that, first of all, that time is good. But time has been corrupted, like the rest of creation has been corrupted, by our sin and by death and the devil. And so the first thing necessary to restoring order and harmony in a dissonant life is through praying the divine office according to the hours of prayer, participating in the liturgical year through the appointed fasts and feasts of the church. I believe with all my heart, I don't think it's a complicated answer. And it's not an, it's not an abstract answer. It's a very extremely practical answer. We have to begin there. That has to be our absolute starting point and center. And, you know, we protect our liturgical um, life at our church, you know, um, the, the liturgical services. We protect them from other encroaching needs and wants and ministries. I mean, all the other stuff is good, but it cannot, it cannot overwhelm, you know, that. That's got to remain a priority. So that, in my, in my view, if somebody was to ask me what's the most important thing you could do, it, my answer is to pray the divine office and, and, and order your life around the liturgical calendar. 
So, so at St. Patrick's, we've been very practical about this. We've tried to create tools that, to help people with this, calendars, and we send out tons of emails. And I preach about it all the time. We talk about it. We have we have daily we have daily three daily services, um, you know, and we do a lot of teaching on it. And we really try and inspire and admonish people to make this a part of their life. And our people like you know they don't plan vacations, you know on during holy week yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, right I, I mean i hope all orthodox christians know not to be planning vacations during holy week but but our folks we ask them we really try and inspire them not in a heavy-handed way but more in an inspiring way to think about their their family life where they're going to live their jobs everything big important stuff to let the liturgical life and the liturgical culture of the church of our local community dictate inform and shape those other decisions hmm. now that might sound pretty radical to some people but our people love it. i mean they, they've responded to this it's it's been amazing how many of our folks have really caught this vision and and found it to be you know incredibly meaningful and exciting and beautiful so they've really been buying in. And I, I, I credit anything good that goes on around, you know, in our parish. I think what's at the heart of it is this commitment to the divine office and really the liturgical year um, and really placing that at the center of things. It, hmm. It's only through weaving the redemptive eschatological, eschatological time into our daily, weekly, hourly, chronos cosmological time <laughs> that's what we're doing when you're doing this when you're praying the daily office you're going to masses you're reading the lives of the saints that's how you sanctify time you know and make it holy while living in a corrupt world that's the only way to do it prayer by, by prayer and offering the sacrifice of the mass we essentially make our existence in this hour mean something eternal so say there's say there's a parish um doing its best to uh keep as many of the feasts as possible uh trying to incorporate the daily office into the lives of its parishioners and wherever possible do it communally and they've got a uh you know they've got a they've got to work to get everyone together anytime the doors of the church are open, and so they have to make some choices. What is your pitch for having them include the Ember Days in their difficult choices of when to make the sacrifice of coming to the church to worship? That's a good question. I mean, I, I think that um, the pastor, the priest, um, has to figure out how they fit in the overall program. So I think it's something that we have to, we have, to have a vision of where we're going. And we don't just snap our fingers and we're there. We take steps, you know. And so um, depending on what can be done in a local church, they have to decide whether they're ready to tackle the Ember Days or not. But, I mean, even if it's a priest and a server, you can go say Mass on the Ember Days. So at least it's a beginning. It's a start, yeah. whether people come or not. And and he can, you know, there's nothing wrong with the priest going over there and saying Mass with a server if he's able and, and then he demonstrates for the people, this is important, and they'll catch on eventually. 
Another thing that goes on even in the psyche of the church, when the people know that I'm over there praying rods every morning at 6.30, our whole congregation knows that. I mean, we, the, the church isn't filled up at 6.30 in the morning, although sometimes we actually do get a small little crowd. Um, and then a lot of people listen in streaming. Um, but it does something to the psyche of the whole parish because they know it's going on. They're all aware of it. it all pops up on their YouTube feed or Facebook feed, and a lot of people will tune in. And it reinforces for them the centrality and importance of this. And I have, I, I absolutely have seen in our parish a dramatic increase, dramatic increase in people's attentiveness and willingness to, to show up to services and come and make that a central part of their life really a defining part of their life. Like it shapes other decisions they make, like where they work and just everything. Yeah, uh, There's no question I, I can say without any hesitation that I have seen it working in our midst. But it's, I just have to tell myself, you know, if I'm, I'm the priest, I believe in this, I'm going to go pray. So it's easy for priests to get discouraged. I think it's something they have to fight. I think you have to say, well, if, if, if nobody comes, it's okay, because I'm here praying to God, and that's what I need to be doing. And and if you don't get discouraged, and you'll kind of get an attitude or cynical about it, and you just keep praying, people will see you praying, and, and you talk about it, you preach about it, you teach about it, you try and inspire people that it's a, a beautiful way to live. Um, people will begin to catch the vision, and um, once they start coming, I think I think the the daily office, in my opinion, other, outside of mass, is, is the most powerful thing a person can do for personal transformation and spiritual maturity. And I'm talking long term. You know, it's not like I'm talking years. You, you're not going to really understand how it's going to help you until you've been doing it for five, ten, fifteen years. Hmm. What are some ways that people can mark? time, including with the, um, the Ember Weeks, um, in sort of, uh, customs or family traditions yeah, yeah. or, you know, habits or in medieval times, there were so many customs and traditions that were, uh, accentuated, punctuated people's lives that weren't, that weren't liturgical per se, not even really paraliturgical. <laughs> These were just things that people right. did in, in their homes or, you know, in the village square or whatever. Um, do you at St. Patrick's uh, do any of those or do you have any ideas or plans for anything? Yeah, that's a, I mean, I think that's a phenomenal question and it's, it's particularly germane to this conversation, to this particular discussion because the Ember days really are, um, in a unique way, addressing life in this flesh, you know, life in creation. And so that also extends to culture, the culture of a, right. a society, right. of a group of people. So how do people live? How do they speak? What, what's meaningful? How do they mark the passage of time? How do you celebrate your anniversary or what special foods do you eat at certain times? And these things, the more you do them, the more meaningful they become. I know in my family, we have a lot of food tra traditions. And I remember my father... We have nut rolls at Christmas every year. And uh, mm -hmm. we're all standing around. I have a huge family. We're all standing around eating the nut rolls. I can remember this like it was yesterday. And my sisters are going, 
what's wrong with these nut rolls? These do not taste like the nut rolls we're used to. We've been eating these nut rolls for decades and decades, our whole lives. And my dad's standing there and he says, well, I thought I'd try a new recipe. <laughs> oh, they we almost took his head off. I mean, he got, he got skinned. Dad, you can't do that. It's tradition. You know, what are you doing changing the recipe? So he was like, well, I just thought I'd try something. No, no, you do not try something new. So that was the last year he changed the recipe. We were back to the old recipe the next year. But, you know, people think repetition like that um, makes something meaningless. Well, I mean, it can, but repetition also, if it's, it's, if it's functioning and we're being attuned to it um, and enjoying it and entering into it, it doesn't make it meaningless. It makes it more meaningful. Right. And so developing traditions in our cultures and even our local cultures, I think is a great idea. And we have to find ways to do that. I know I'm not answering your question with specifics because I'm stalling trying to think of an idea. <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned um, you, you mentioned recently to me something about the um, feast of the uh, entrance into the temple of, the, sure. of our Lord. Yeah, yeah the purification. The purification. So, so that's that's February second. It, it doesn't land on Ember Day, but we are talking about this at our church, and and I'm just I just I know that we have things. I just can't remember. But that one I does does come to mind. Christmas sort of ends, the Christmas season sort of officially ends, the hymns and things sort of wrap up by February 2nd, 40 days after Christmas. So the Christ, we leave our decorations up as long as we can mm-hmm. without them, you know, dying. Uh, we leave whatever we can leave up till February 2nd. And we had this idea years ago, um, you know, to bring everybody, bring their Christmas tree. You know, if you're not going to keep it in the house, just put it out back, but save it and bring it to church on February 2nd, we'll have mass, and then we'll have a huge bonfire and burn everybody's Christmas trees on February 2nd. So we started doing this years ago, and um, it's like, it's awesome. I mean, who doesn't like a big fire? Uh, I, I mean, we're always that. looking for an excuse to light a fire. So, and we're out in the country. Yeah, we're, we're in we're too much churches. of an urban area for that, but, um, but I am jealous. We had a huge tree in the church this year. It was huge. It was like 15, 18 feet tall. <laughs> and the guys stood it up right when they burned it. And they lit it on fire. And I'm telling you, the flames were going like 40, <laughs> 50 feet into the, <laughs> into the air. It was extraordinary. So we're all hanging out by there burning our That's That's going to create it, some it, memories. It Yeah, it does create memories. And we look forward to it every year. And it's the way we sort of mark the end of the Christmas season. We love Christmas. Yeah. I think those kinds of things, and we do other things at different times, but you can develop your own sort of customs and things that are meaningful and attach meaning to the seasons. I plant my garlic at a certain time. You've got to plant that in the fall. You, you know, even things around the house and the home, you can sort of like try and attach them to the ember weeks um, to, to bring a little bit more tension and focus and meaning. Yeah to those four seasonal changes. But we had a we're we're in a we're in a long series right now at church in our adult Sunday school class on kingdom culture. And we've talked about so many different things. But one of the topics that we talked about was uh, nature and um, a presentation was given about how to live uh, seasonally. And um, it was really good, you know. I mean, you could hear this in a completely non religious circle to a talk like this, but it was, it was in the context of really these ember days. I ended up giving a teaching on these ember days in response to this presentation about living seasonally. Hmm. 
but just getting in touch with the seasons and marking the seasons. And you, you mentioned earlier a New Year's resolution or January. Well, why not why not a quarterly kind of event like that? A lot of people right. another thing we didn't mention was a lot of people go to confession. Mm. So during the mm. on the in the four ember days. Yeah. So that becomes a major confession period. Well, confession is all about taking stock, thinking about your life, thinking right. about what God's calling you to change. Right. So the Ember Days really, and it's fasting, it's penitential. So those are the days to really sort of like you're shifting, you're you're cha- changing seasons. There's a changing of the guard, right? You know, a changing of the luminaries, so to speak. So yeah, it's time to sort of take stock, uh, think about where, where, what, how, how was winter? You know, now that we're coming into spring. What do I need to be looking for to change this spring? Right. Use use these. We do your spring cleaning on. To, yeah, do your spring cleaning. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bring, get orderly. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe it's time to straighten the house out and clean up around and kind of order your life. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, I love I love the idea of you know think thinking of things that make sense to to do you know at these times, and intentionally attaching them to the Ember Week. So that you are, again, not just sanctifying the time liturgically, but expanding out that that notion into your your own family life and then, you know, by extension into the lives of your neighbors and your children, your friends and the concept of the importance of the Ember Days and how useful they could be as a, a, a time to take stock. And to anchor us in where we are in the year is just becoming so obvious as as you speak about this so when you have emotion i have a, i don't know i'm i'm an artistic person so i'm kind of i'm very sensual in the sense that i'm tied to the senses and temperature and seasonal changes i live in the country in the woods kind of the, the leaves coming off the tree i'm very very in tune with all of that stuff i raise animals i do a little bit of farming gardening kind of thing so that's all tied into it. So these things are very meaningful to me. So I also notice kind of the emotional change and shift that goes on in me with the seasonal changes, you know, and the death in winter, the dying and the cold, absolutely tripping bare yeah. of the trees. Yeah. And there's something beautiful, you know, you can find a beauty in that, but there's also a melancholy there. It's it's time to kind of come into the house. I spend more time in my books you know, with a cup of tea, more reflective spring comes and it's, it's a time of buoyancy and excitement about, you know, new life and getting out into the garden, you know, in summer and fall is very, for me, sort of a nostalgic time. I don't know why, but a lot of, but, 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 you know, you're sort of in touch with there's seasons in your life, there's seasons in the, in your personal life and your marriages and our families and our churches and our ministries everything operates according to seasons it really does i you know i and even if you're say living on or near the equator and you don't really have the the benefit of uh the seasonal changes that we sort of at our latitude um experience you know you're still experiencing a difference in daylight how many hours are in a day uh, you're you're experiencing uh, changes in weather cycles that are affected by, you know, all, all of this warming and cooling at the different uh, poles that that comes through the equation. So, I mean, it doesn't matter where you are on the globe. These 
these times matter. They they affect your life. Uh, basically, anywhere humans live, there's going to be perceptible changes throughout the year. And I love I love intentionally the idea of intentionally connecting to those through penance and prayer, special masses. You're right. There there is there is sort of a character of reality. Uh, maybe a maybe a spiritual reality, maybe something of that heavenly character that shines through, is communicated, is spoken out loud through through our cosmological nature in in some of these seasons, and to not to not acknowledge that and mark it in our prayer life in the church would be what a waste that would be if we didn't do that. So I'm 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 I have a renewed thankfulness for the ember days now that i know where they came from what they're for and then the fact that we have retained them all this time <laughs> all this time later they're still there for us and for our, our benefit i love i really do love the what these things mean and what they could mean for us if we develop those habits and customs and and are intentional about marking them both liturgically and in sort of our lives beyond the doors of the church? Well, it's not hard to start. I mean, the place to start, you don't have to figure it all out. You just need to start having mass on the Ember Days. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how you start. That's what, that's what we did. We just start. I just realized they were probably important because they were so old and nobody knew what they meant, but the church kept them. So I get this feeling like they're important and could be helpful. So we're just going to have mass on all the Ember Days. I'm sold. That's how we started. And they're, they're becoming more and more meaningful to our church and our community. So it's kind of cool, actually. It's great. Well, I would love to to see a, a massive resurgence in, in the observance of these across all of our churches, where I'm, I'll do my best to um, convince our, uh, <laughs> our priest and clergy to, to do everything we can to, to try to observe them. Well, I think this has been a fascinating discussion and I have learned a lot, and I've I've been excited by by what what these things mean. Like like I've been saying, I'm, I I want to go off and and now read through the texts of these masses and you know the liturgical books and see what all is is there. And I'm eager to to start living into these special days. Well, we have Embertide coming up, uh, so fast approaching. Yeah, after next. Well, thank you for, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for putting this together as always. Oh, thank you. You took us through a, a fascinating uh, ride <laughs> there at the beginning uh, with, you know, we have these things, but what are they? And then we, we got to what they were, and then, then we covered, you know, what they mean and can mean for us. So this has been, this has been wonderful. Thank you, Father Patrick. 